Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Abundant Solutions Hour. Our goal is to help others be more, do more, and have more. I'm your host, Gregory Turner. And I'm your co-host, Brian J. Henderson. Brian, how are you doing? Oh, I can't complain at all today. Yeah, I tell you what, man, we got a show tonight that's going to help a lot of people. I think so, I think so. Yeah, you know, when we talk with our guests, I spoke with her publisher, her manager, and I was so excited to get her to come on the show. One reason is because she's going to help a lot of people. She's been through some tough times, but now she's here to help others, and that's that's the amazing thing, Brian. We're talking about domestic violence tonight, mm-hmm. and it's something that a lot of people are going through, and this thing is just taking over homes, is ruin, ruining families, it's just ruining, you know, a, a, a female or a male, whoever's been uh, abused, it's, it's such a sad and ugly thing. And I know, Brian, I know you know someone that's been through it or they're going through it. Yes, I, you know, I actually have friends that have actually been through it and are going through it, you know, and sad to say it's not just, you know, uh, a male thing, where a male hits a female, it's also on the other side, you know, but the important thing about our guest tonight is that, and you alluded to it earlier, she got through it. Yes. Because so many people don't make it through. Yes. yes. You know, Greg, you ever, have you ever been somewhere where you felt like you were trapped and you couldn't get out? Wow. And the only way you could get out is to stay in? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I I, I know the feeling, but, Brian, I think that thing goes a lot deeper than me being in a position where I can't get out. And it's so sad that so many women are going through this thing, and they're going through it alone. It seems like they can't come out of it. It seems like a lot of women are staying in it because of their children, because they feel like if I say something right now, it's going to be sad and not not so much being sad but they're going to be in a position of depression they may even lose their lives but tonight's guest i guarantee you a lot of people will be helped a lot of people will be delivered from this thing that they're going through and they'll find out that they're not the only one going through it yes yes and the wonderful thing about it brian is some people will hear, and they'll know that this powerful woman has been through something, and what she says, they can relate to it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, yes. Yes. You know, sadly, of course, they can relate to it. And, you know, that's the reason why we were so glad to have her agree to come on the show and talk, you know, because there's a segment in society that never gets the opportunity to voice the things that are going on, you know, in their in in this particular, you know, situation. Yeah. You know, they don't get an opportunity to voice the fact that they've been hit or beaten or demoralized or any of those things that occurs when you have domestic violence and physical abuse going on. Yes, and Brian, we're gonna we're gonna offer a lot of help tonight. There's a there's a website that we're gonna go to when we when Brian when you bring our guest on in a few minutes that mm-hmm. there's a lot of help out there. And she's doing some wonderful, wonderful things. And if you really want help, you can get the help. But I think at some point in your life, you're going to have to make that decision that I can do it, that I can stand up. And, Brian, our guest tonight is still standing. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our guest for this evening. Go ahead. Um, First of all, if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Abundant Solutions Hour, and tonight's topic is Still Standing. And we have with us best-selling author and ex-wife of the D.C. sniper, Mildred Muhammad. And she has a riveting story to tell about what it means for a woman to marry the man of her dreams and then watch her world collapse as she discovers that her husband is as dangerous as he is controlling and demanding. Yes, yes. Ms. Muhammad, are you there? Yes, sir, I am. And I, I want to thank you for this opportunity to speak about domestic violence and my story. Yes, thank you so much for coming on. I tell you what, 
I was just so excited when I spoke with your manager, and and she was just so so open. I tell you what, this is going to be an open door for you uh, for, for this show. Whenever you feel that that you want to come on, and whatever it is that you have to offer, we're here for you. We're here for everybody else that's going through this. This is very, this is a very very uh, tough and uh, touchy subject that a lot of people really don't want to talk about. And that is correct. They don't yes. because yes. it touches. You're talking about tearing away the fabric of the family. Yes. And a lot of people don't want to discuss that. There mm-hmm. is shame associated with being a victim or a survivor of domestic violence. You will be amazed at the feeling that a woman and a man experience when they're trying to get help from family and friends who say they understand, but they really don't. Mm-hmm. But you know what, Ms. Muhammad? Yes, when, Yes, when you were going through your tough times and your suffering and, and you were crying out, trying to get help, but no one would help you, it, it just seems like from reading your story, I tell you, it just it, it ripped my heart out to to see that you were going through You were trying to do everything, and it just seemed like nobody believed you until... Uh, one ugly day. How how did you make it through that? Well, you know, I felt like Hagar, <laughs> running to and fro, <laughs> yes, yes. trying to find somebody to help me because, you know, the mountaintops mean authorities. I was going to the authorities trying to get help. But because I did not have the physical scars to prove that I was a victim of domestic violence, my calls were just cries in the wilderness. And it's unfortunate that we have become a society, a, a visual society, where I have to see your pain before I will help you. If I come to you speaking in the tone that I am, dressed in a manner that I do, which is professional, there is no way you will believe that I'm a victim of domestic violence. Because I'm in that situation and I have been conditioned to guard my emotions, therefore the tone that I use and the manner in which I speak is a safety for me because if I exhibit emotions in a domestic violence situation, they will be used against me. Well, if I'm going out to a stranger for help and I don't know that stranger, I'm not going to exhibit my emotions for fear that he or she may use them against me. For instance, if I come in and I'm crying and I'm all over the floor and I'm a victim, first thing you're going to say is, why are you crying? Why don't you calm down? It can't be that bad for you re-victimizing me after I have put up the courage to step outside of my comfort zone to come for help, you send me right back and don't even try to help. What does that say to to women who do not have the physical scars to show you that they are victims of domestic violence? Those These are the women that I am speaking for until they get their own voice to let them know that just because you don't have the scars – does not mean you are not a victim of domestic violence. Just because you go to people and they tell you that you're not a victim does not mean that you're not a victim. You have to take control, go out there and be aggressive to get the help that you need because nobody wants you when you're down and out. Nobody want to help you if you're not helping yourself. So when, when the, in the Bible says if you take one step toward the Lord, he takes two, mm. take that step and make sure that you have God as your backing because that's all I had. That's all I had was God directed my path. I listened to my spirit. My spirit said go, I went. My spirit said stay, I didn't go. I listened to my spirit because God will never let you down and your spirit will never lead you astray if you listen. Mm-hmm. 
You're listening to the Abundant Solutions Hour. Tonight's topic is still standing, and we have Miss Mildred Muhammad with us. Miss Muhammad, you know, it's 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 intriguing, and at the same time, sad that you're even on our show tonight, because so many people, even afterward, after they've been, you know, after they've been released from the bondage, when they've been, you know. When they get out of the situation that they're in, they don't want to talk about it. You know, it, it it becomes tough. It becomes difficult for them to talk about it and you know go back through it. Do you find yourself, you know, seeing that those situations, you know, and reliving those situations as you talk about them? Yes, sir. Because it has become a part of me. In order for me to express me, I have to express. My experience is when I began to talk about it that I can begin to release it. But if you didn't listen to me before it happened, why are you going to listen to me after it happened? What's the difference? Now you know more? Is it that you didn't trust me? Is it that you didn't believe me? What makes me feel comfortable talking to you after it happened when you didn't listen to me before it happened? So what changed? You wow. or me? Wow, Miss wow. Muhammad, I I, I want to, you know, <laughs> this is this is this is a really tough interview interview. But we know that bondages and all of this stuff is going to be broken tonight because I really do believe that 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 you're going to say something so powerful that it, it's going to make a lot of people that are in positions right now that they feel that they can't come out of. They'll come out of those positions tonight. Um, you know, when you were were were, ma- were married to uh, Mr. Muhammad, and you were going through all of these tough things, and your life being threatened, and your children being taken away from you, you're absolutely right. You, you, all you had was God, because everything else was taken from you. And at your lowest point, how did you feel at your lowest point? When you were at your lowest point, was suicide ever uh, something that you thought about? Well, suicide was something that I thought about. I even thought about how to do it. I was so down with trying to understand why I was in the situation. And regardless of who I told, nobody believed me. And he told me, you can tell anybody you want, and nobody is going to believe you. And I tried it, and nobody believed me. When I was contemplating that, I went to one of the the elders in our mosque to take her a package. I looked on her dresser, and there was a tape by Minister Farrakhan, and the name of the tape was God's Healing Power. It was dated June 1991. Not knowing what was on the tape, I took the tape. I asked her, could I, could I listen to it? And she said, sure. Put the tape in the radio, the, the tape player in my car. And it was about suicide. Wow. How could I know that? It was about suicide. I pulled my car over. I cried through the whole tape. Because in there, he said, if you are contemplating suicide, go and get help. I called my doctor. And I went in to see him, and I told, and he has never seen me shed a tear. Every time he's seen me, I always had a smile on my face. When I walked in and sat me down, he said, so, Mildred, what's going on? I start crying, and I start saying, it's no reason for me to be here. My children will be fine without me. John is always telling me that I am not a good mother, a good Muslim, I don't keep the house clean. I don't do any of these things, and I know I'm doing my best. But it seems when I go for help, nobody is listening. So why am I here? He said, wait, Mildred, hold up. I have never heard you talk like this. You always have a kind word for me. You have to change this. We have to help you through this. That is when I went and got help. The more I listened to that tape, the stronger I felt. Because, see, I'm a praying woman. I know who God is, and I know 
that he will help me through this process if I would but trust and believe. Now, faith without works is dead. So I'm not going to sit down and pray and do nothing. I have to pray and I have to go to work. I have to work my faith. I have to find out what I need to do, how I need to do, when I need to do it, and execute my plan. And that's what I did. Yes, wow. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Abundant Solutions Hour, and tonight's topic is still standing, and we have special guest with us, Mildred Muhammad. And, you know, Ms. Muhammad, it's just, you know, as I listen to you, I just say, wow, because, you know, most people don't realize what uh, victims of domestic violence go through on the, on the you know, psychological side, on the mental side. They really don't know how much mental damage occurs, you know, and how much psychological damage occurs. And, you know, that's one of the first things that an aggressor, you know, or an abuser will use. They won't do physical damage first because no. that's, too, that's too easy to figure out. Okay, he punched me in the face today. I know something's not right here. What they start doing is, the first, you know, from what I've been, from what I've seen, because I know victims, and I've, you know, I have some in my family. My sisters, both of them, have been victims of uh, spousal abuse and domestic violence. So I, when I saw the signs, and you know, as I talked to them about it, the signs were apparent. The first thing they start doing is trying to change your friends. And your appearance, you shouldn't wear this, don't look like this. You know, they don't want you talking to certain people. They try to shield you away from your family. And then they begin to barrage you with all the negatives that you have, that they think you have, you know, in, in an effort to try to destroy you and demoralize you to where you feel like the only thing you have is that person. And you have to listen to them because they're, your, they're the reason that, you know, you're able to get by. Is that kind of is that accurate? Is that the situation that you were put in? I was, but not to the point where I felt that he was the only one that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, the first offense is verbal. It can be as subtle as, "Let's go to the store." Well, I don't want to go, but you can go if you want to. But I, I really like for you to stay home. See, it starts as subtle as that. And you say, oh, well, okay, I won't go today. We'll just go tomorrow. It's as subtle as that. A lot of people just do that on general purpose, GP. Mm-hmm. But a, a controlling person does this strategically. John was strategic in what he did. It wasn't a pattern. It was if you wasn't looking for it, you didn't see it. It wasn't until I started looking at it that I saw it, and then I couldn't let him know I saw it because he would change it. It's like when he was in the courtroom, and I'm sure everyone saw how he was very calm and collected, showing no emotion in the courtroom. Well, he practiced that. He'd get an emotion. His face would frown or whatever. He would go to the mirror to look at that face and change it so that no one would be able to read his face to say what that emotion was. He was strategic. He had a plan A, B, C, and D, and each one of those had a one, two, three, and four. He did not play. He was very detailed, very oriented in what he was doing and how he would make it happen. That's why it threw people off. They said, oh, he's a he's we don't know why he's behaved like this because you didn't live with him. I knew. Hmm. I tried to tell people, but nobody would listen. So what do you do? Yes. Why do you Why do you think he went on this this rampage, this killing spree? Why, why do you think he did that? Was his parents abusive? It was his Was his father abusive to his mother? I was the target. I was the target. The domestic violence started in Tacoma, Washington. He took the, I asked him for a divorce in September of 1999. He moved out of the house. He started coming back in the house in the middle of the night, standing over me. He didn't know I I knew he was there. It was dark. With 
my helping him to train in the military, I knew that his night vision had already kicked in. If I opened my eyes in the dark, he would have saw the white of my eyes, so I kept my eyes closed. But my hearing, my alertness in my hearing went up. So I can hear the footsteps. I can hear where he was. If he walked around the bed, I could hear that he was going around the bed. He he took all of the money out of the account, had the children for weekend visitation, and he was gone. My son told me later that he they boarded the plane that Monday night and went to Antigua. That's where he met Lee Malvo. What a lot of people don't know is that in those 18 months that they were in Antigua, Lee Malvo was brought into that nucleus, and Lee became my son's best friend. They played together, he and the girls, when John would lead them over in Antigua to come to the United States to find me. He left them there with no money and no food. So when they were when they found them in Bellingham, Washington, they gave the children back to me. Was he and the way they found him was he went into social services to get food stamps. And that's an automatic red flag when a man goes into social services to request cash and food stamps. They cross-referenced the children's names and found my name in there with them, and the social worker told him he needed to come back the next day. Well, they called CPS, and they were able to pick up the children. They called me. I was over here in, um, on the East Coast at that point. I had to go back to Washington State for an emergency custody hearing. While in the courtroom, he told the judge she knew where those children were. She knew I had them. I don't know why we're in court. The judge said, Mr. Williams, the only thing we're here to do today is to decide who gets the children. The judge awarded the children back to me. My attorney, my friend, and I were in the hallway. My back was to the door of the hallway. I saw the presence coming behind me. I look around, and it's John walking very hostily like he's coming to get me. I take off down the hallway. Shoes go everywhere. I run around the corner. My attorney and my friend see me running down the hall. They look at John, and they run too. They run around the corner. He goes to the courtroom door, puts his hand on the doorknob, look at me, and says, gotcha. My attorney said, oh, no, you got to leave tonight. My friend called her daughter and told her to lock all the doors and windows. She was fearful that John would get to her house before she would. We got on a plane that night after I got the children. We had to go in the basement of the YWCA to a door that led to the street where a car was waiting. And we were driven to the airport, and we came back here. I hid underground, under the radar. For three years, the 23 days that everyone went through the shootings here, I went through that for three years. I always looked over my shoulder. I always knew it would be a headshot. I always knew he would find me. I was always fearful, in terror, scared, and nobody listened. Nobody. I was scared out of my mind. But I had to go to work. And when I checked the rooftops and I checked the levee, I went back to the front door and I said, Lord, here I am. I got to go to work. Please protect me as I step out on faith because my baby's got to eat. And that's how I went to work, always watching over my back, over my shoulder. But my babies had to eat. My goodness. Wow. I, can't even I was the target. Law enforcement know that. And they asked me, Ms. well, they told me, Ms. Muhammad, we're going to name your husband, your ex-husband as the sniper. Didn't you know that you were the target? I said, well, I didn't even know he was the sniper. So I didn't put the sniper and John together until ATF told me 
that they were going to name him as the sniper. That's when his picture was flashed on the TV. That's when I had to tell my children that they were naming their dad as the sniper. When I told my son, it was like you put a pen in a balloon and the air just seeped out slowly. He just dwindled down to the floor. I said, no, baby, you can't collapse right now. You've got to be strong for me right now. You cannot do this yet. Not yet. Hold on just a little bit, please. I had to go tell my daughters the same thing. They started crying, please, baby, don't cry yet. Just hold on. We got to leave out of here. By the time we were leaving out, the media was coming in. So they missed us just by a few minutes. When we got to the hotel, they showed his picture on the TV. And that's when my children just collapsed. I said, y'all can cry. I couldn't cry in front of them. Because I, I... I had to be strong for my children. I was in just as much pain as them, but was I? That's their dad. This is my ex-husband, but that's their dad. So I had to put them to sleep, go in the bathroom with a pillow, turn on the water, close the door, and cry so they couldn't hear me. So when I came out, Mommy, you okay? I'm fine, honey. You okay? I had to always stay calm, speaking in the tone that I am for my children. I could not display my emotions because their mental and emotional status depended at that time and still does on how I react to all of this. If my reactions and my emotions are not in check, my children are a basket case for everybody else to deal with. And I would not and will not allow that to happen to them. Uh, Mrs. Muhammad, you know, uh, I, I'm <laughs> I'm lost for words here, but I'm I'm gonna find some. Did okay. You, you know, you know, then, <laughs> yes. Then, and it's know, okay to laugh because you know when you laugh, you hide the tears. But you gotta right. laugh sometimes. Yeah, you I'll gotta be... find you gotta find a purpose. You have to find a reason. And every day you're in your trauma to laugh, you have to, because God is a good God. And in everything that happens, there's a silver lining if you look for it. And every day that I got up and I breathed the air, that was my silver lining. Mm. Because everybody didn't make it, but I did. And I was going to say, you know, you were so covered, not by your own doing, but you were covered by a higher power. Yes, and, sir, I truly and, believe and, that. Yes, yes. And that's, you know, that's something that I, I, I can just hear it all through your voice. But, you know, being married to this man, the man that you uh, said that you would be with forever, this is the man mm-hmm. that you closed your eyes next to at night. And you were sleeping with the enemy and not knowing it. Did you ever imagine that this person could do something like this? No, sir. Not for one moment. I didn't even believe believe this. It was difficult for me to believe that he would kill me. He told me in the garage, you have become my enemy, and as my enemy, I will kill you. See, I saw the look in his eye. I saw the expression on his face. I saw his demeanor when he said it, and I knew. He was going to find a way to make it happen, and nobody would find my body. I knew that. John's motto is, never leave an enemy behind. I had become his enemy, and he was not going to leave me behind. If that man get out of prison, and y'all say, well, where's Mildred? You know I'm hiding, because he is coming after me. He is going to finish what he started. He is not going to leave me breathing when he can get to me. Do you ever think he will get out? No. I don't think so either. I don't think so. I don't. He has exhausted, I know, he. I think he has four more pills. Uh, there is a freeze on death penalties nationwide that I understand. And he is he is not going to sit in that cell and die. He's going to fight for his life. He's going to fight. And if anybody thinks he's not, they're sadly mistaken. Hmm. 
just joining us, you're listening to the Abundant Solutions Hour. Tonight's topic is still standing, and we have with us best-selling author and ex-wife of the D.C. sniper, Mildred Muhammad. If you have any questions or comments for our guest or for us, you can give us a call at 718-508-9600. That's 718-508-9600. So, Mr. Muhammad, you know, it's almost like even though you weren't necessarily a physical prisoner at the time, he it was like he had you mentally imprisoned. Yes, sir. He passed, I mean, his, his MOS in the military was uh, combat engineer. He was taught psychological warfare. Mm-hmm. He practiced on me. Wow. So if he practiced on me and, and, and he got it right, then all the people that he spoke to, to convince them that I was the enemy, and those same people would spy on me and report back to him what I was doing. He was very good at what he did. The people that would come by and say, oh, Mildred, I I wish I knew where your children were. They do. And they didn't tell me. I changed my phone number five times, and he was able to call someone in the phone company and have my phone number changed again. One person called me, and I asked her, can you please give me my phone number? Well, John told me not to give it to you. And you're going to listen? My son has asthma. I need to be able to call out. You're not going to give me my phone number? No, I, I, I can't do that. So what kind of power does he have to where other people will help him victimize me? The peop- there were people that helped him to take my children to Antigua. He didn't have that kind of money. He had a, a um, business where he made false birth certificates and passports for $3,000 a pop and brought people from Antigua and Jamaica to the United States. That's how he made his money. That's how he was able to travel back and forth, looking for me and leaving the children over in Antigua. Hmm. Very smart man. Were you were you ever in a position where you felt, okay, this is it, my life is, is just over, I know that I'm going to die in his presence? No. In his presence? Yes. He, he wasn't going to, it was going to be a headshot. In his presence to me, meaning I'm going to, I'm going to see him when he kills me. No, that he wasn't going to do that. Then he would have pointed back to him. See, his the theory was, I was supposed to be number fifteen. Two more people were to be killed after me. He was coming in as the grieving father to get the children. He would have gotten the victim compensation money. And he would have rolled off into the sunset. The headlines would have been totally different. Grieving father regains custody of stolen children. Wouldn't have heard anything about me. Other just the negative things that did not occur. I spoke with Lee's family when I testified in his uh, trial. They said they believed my theory. And then they said, well, you know, his fingerprints were the only ones they had at that time. So he would have killed him and threw him over to the side. Months later, they would have found his body, did a fingerprint and said, oh, we found a sniper. John would have been gone with the children and nobody would have been the wiser. I would have been dead and out of the way and so would Lee. That was the theory. So his whole plan was to be basically efficient, completely efficient and anonymous. Yes, right. That's right. That's right. Ms. Muhammad, we have a caller on the line, and I'd like to go to them if you don't mind. Yes, sir. All right. We have a caller from the 515 
area code. Caller, are you there? Yes, this is Jan um, with the organization Saving Our Children. Hi, Mildred. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for asking. I have two questions, okay? Okay. The car that he was driving, was that the same car that he has um, always drove? And then the second question is, when did you realize that it was um, your ex-husband that was uh, the sniper? And I'll hang up and listen. Okay. The car that he was driving was a car, from my understanding, that he purchased in New York from the Sure Shot auto dealer. Uh, It wasn't until the FBI and ATF, during an interview with me, told me that they were going to name John as the sniper is when I put the two together. Now, they asked me, well, do you think he would do something like this? I was like, well, (laughs) yeah. They said, well, why do you think that? I said, well, you know, we was watching a movie, and he said, you know, I could take a small city, terrorize it, and people would think it would be a group of people, but it would only be me. I said, why would you do something like that? And he changed the subject. Hello? Yes. Wow. We're here. We're here. We're oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's got quiet. Okay. Oh, boy. And what was her second question? Her second, her first question was, was that a car he always drove? And the second right. question was, um, when did I know he was the sniper? And I answered both. Okay. Right. All right. You know what, Ms. Muhammad, it's, uh, you know, with your children, mm-hmm. other kids, they can be so cruel. Right. You know, when they when when everything was over and he was in custody and they went on to school, did they are they dealing with cruel people now? Are they dealing with that? No. Um before they went back to school, we did drills. The drill consisted of me asking them, Is that your dad? What are you gonna say? Do you still love him? What are you going to say? Somebody walk up to you and they say, your dad killed whoever, what are you going to say? Just so happened my daughter, Taliba, came home and she said, Mommy, one of my classmates said that Daddy killed his uncle. I said, okay, what did you say? She said, I told him that I'm sorry for his loss. And I said, what else did you say? She said, I didn't say anything else. I say, and that's good because you are not responsible for what your dad did. So you don't take on that responsibility for him. So I'm very proud of you. And that's how they learned to deal with what other people had to say. We went to the movies and we were watching Barbershop 2. In Barbershop 2, they referenced their dad. I didn't know that, I didn't know that was in the movie. Neither did they. When they came, when we the movie was over, they were very upset. Why did they say something like that about Dad? I said, okay, let's look at the truth of the matter. Is what they said true? They had to think about it. Well, yeah. I say, see, you have people take things that are serious to add humor to it, to deal with it. Doesn't make it right, but that's how people deal with things. So you have to be able to look at what they say and see if if it's the truth. If it's the truth, you can't do nothing with it. You can accept it and move on. If it's false, you still can't do anything with it. You just dismiss it and move forward because you're wasting time and you're exerting too much energy in trying to fight everybody who may say something negative about your dad. This is too many people. This is international. We have to stay focused and move forward, and that's what we do. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. Ms. Muhammad, we have another caller. Yes, sir. And this caller is from the 614 area code. Caller, are you there? Yes, I am. All right, do you have a comment or a question? I sure do. I am Celeste Payne, and I am married to one of Mildred's friends from um, 
high school. Ivory. Yes. <laughs> and we are listening here with our with our family. And the one question I had was how does um how has this affected your relationship with people that you know, like in your past? That's a good question. Um the people in my past I had to put in God's hands. And I had to pray and ask God that when I am, when he puts me in their presence to speak for me, because I've not been able, I've not seen any of those people at that time. I have not been back to the West Coast. But I would like to think that I have matured enough to understand that everything works for a purpose. And in God's purpose, there's a reason for what happened. So if I truly believe that and understand that, then I have to let God work that out before I get there, knowing that once I see them, I really don't know how I will react, but I pray that the way I react will be pleasing only to God, and that's the best way that I can answer that. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for the question. Okay. Bye-bye. Mrs. Muhammad, you know, know, just just all the things that you've gone through so far and up to now, you know, if you look back over your life, did you ever say, you know what, if I could change this, I would do this? Or if I saw this different behavior in your ex-husband, you would act a different kind of way so that you could get out of it. Did you ever think about just grabbing your kids and just running? If someone else asked me that question, you know, if, if I changed one thing, I would not have my children. If I, if I, for whatever reason God saw fit for our children to come through us, to deny one thing would be denying them. So I cannot, I can't change anything. I can just accept what it is and move forward. You know, as I was given lemons, I'm trying to make lemonade. That's what I'm trying to do. So I, you know. I can make it sweet or I can make it bitter, but I'm going to make the lemonade. Yes. We have a chat room right now, and someone in the chat room asked a question. I think it's Janice. Uh, She wanted to know, have you talked with any of the uh, murdered families? I only spoke with them, some of them, during the trial, but not after. But they, I thought at the time that they blamed me because Uh other people were saying to me, well, if you would have stayed with him, then he would have only killed you. Or, you know, you should have stayed over on the West Coast because when you came to the East Coast, then all these people were killed. So they were blaming me. So I thought that they blamed me as well, but they didn't. They were happy that I got out when I did, and that was the end of that. Wow. I can't even, I can't even imagine the type of pressure that you were under, and for you to talk the way you're talking tonight, I mean, I can hear so much strength and faith, and that's something that we all need. You know, Brian, we we worry and feel like our world is caving in on us because we may have a bill here or we're dealing with something else there. Mm-hmm. But to imagine uh, walking in your shoes, my goodness. And Brian, I hate. I'm sorry to cut you off, but go ahead. I, I know you had a question for. No, I was just going to comment and say that you know, it's just it's appalling to hear people make those type of statements. You know, a lot of it is just out of their own selfishness that they would say, "Why couldn't it just be you?" That you know, I right. That that just saddens me and appalls me to hear something like that. You know that they would they would rather you be, you know, sacrificed than what had happened. You know, and, and to an extent, you can almost understand 
where they're coming from, but for them right. to actually say that to you, right? You know, that's well, just some, that's just wrong. <laughs> you well, know? Some, some people have said, "Well, I'm glad it happened to you, but not to me. I'm glad God chose you." And I mean, I don't know if that's an insult or if that's a compliment. I don't know what that is. I think it's a compliment. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it sounds like okay. a compliment because, the, you know, the one thing we know is he doesn't give you anything that you can't handle. Okay, right. but if he would have told me this ahead of time, <laughs> <laughs> if he would have consulted with me, <laughs> I would have very much have liked that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's talk about you know, not give direction, not instruction. Can you just, you know, can you let me in? Well, you know, when 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 John took the children, and I was I was, I you know I cannot. Oh, I wish I could articulate how painful it is to lay your head on a pillow every night and not know where your children are. If you have children, I don't care how bad they are, love them, hug them, let them know that you are there, take them on one day, on just a shopping day, just you and them, because to not hear your children for 18 months, to not hear a cry, a whimper, a laugh, a joke from your children is a feeling that I would not wish on anyone. Right now with my children laughing and talking, I sit in the living room with my arms folded listening. I don't say be quiet. You're too, I may say you're too loud, but I don't tell them to be quiet. I just listen because for 18 months I heard nothing. I heard nothing. I don't wish that feeling on anybody. And I know that there are people listening who have children that are missing. And I just have to say the one thing that helped me through that was the story of Jacob and Joseph. Because, you know, Joseph's brothers sold them off because they was jealous. But Jacob didn't know that. And he had to deal with a missing child, a lost child. And I read that story often because I found comfort in a, a prophet went through what I went through and he understood. He said in the Quran, Oh Allah, I pray that the way that I handle this is pleasing only to you. At some point you have to take control and not worry about what other people think or feel about what you're doing. Because when you are in a transition, people can't judge you in a transition, but they do. People can't tell you what to do. If you were in my shoes, you would have done the same thing. One of the social workers told me when I was in the shelter, girl, if I was you, I'd be out there looking for my children, trying to... I felt trying to make me feel guilty that I wasn't doing anything. I mean, but what could I do if I if I gave up my position? He was going to kill me. If I told anybody where I was, I had to change my name, my dress. There were windows all around the house. I didn't even go outside. When I did, I had to wear a disguise. I could I could not move freely. I knew it would be a headshot. It is just terrifying to go through that alone, but I wasn't alone because God was with me all of the way. That's when when the song, I remember in the church, it says, I've learned how to lean and depend on Jesus. Oh, yeah, you learn at that point who you need to call on. And I called and I called and I called. And I remember praying on my prayer rug, and I cried for two hours. And I say, Lord, i got to give you this. I can't do this. I cannot do this. I am putting this in your hands because I have done all I can do, and I can't do any more. So I'm giving this to you, but direct me in the way that I should go. I gave all of the, I gave my children. 
I gave John, I gave family, I gave friends to God. I let him deal with that while I worked on Mildred. While I was in the shelter, I took paralegal courses through uh, PCDI, the the courses that come through the mail. Uh I sent my little $5 in and got my courses. I was studying well enough, making straight A's in order to get uh, internship at the YWCA while living in the shelter. Working there, I was able to go and stand up for victims of domestic violence as a legal advocate. I don't know where my children are, and I don't know how I'm going to get out of there, but I'm helping somebody else. Mm-hmm. Okay? While I'm in the shelter, the other women see what I'm doing. They bring me their paperwork. Mildred, can you, can you help me out with this? I need to do I can't, can Can you go to court with me? Because I felt God was using me to help other people even then. So who am I to say that wasn't his intended purpose? All I say, Lord, here am I, send me. I don't know where you're taking me. I don't know where I'm going. All I ask is that you protect me and direct my path, and I will go where you want me to go. I will do what you want me to do, and that's what I've been doing through my organization after the trauma. All the programs that I have within my organization are those programs that I did not get help in. As wide and as widespread as my situation was, I was not able to get help because I did not have the physical scars. My help was slow in coming. They didn't listen to me even after my trauma. I had to work on myself after my trouble, my trauma. I, I unfortunately I went to unethical counselors who was trying to write a book. Because this was a high-profile case, everybody wants some money. So I had to pull myself and my children in, go and get a book from the library, learn psychology to counsel myself and my children. Because I would not put them out there for anybody to hurt them ever again. So I had to take on that, too, to learn that now I use it to help other survivors and victims who just need somebody to listen. You know, I just want you to listen. I can do that. I can just listen. How do you want me to help you? I don't go in saying, well, this is what you need to do and this and that. No. The only question that should be asked of a a victim or a survivor is how can I help? Because you may be the only person that is giving this person the knowledge that, you know what, they're listening. Because they're asking me instead of telling me what to do. People have been telling me what to do all along. This is the one person that is truly interested in what I want to do, control. They're giving me my control back. That's what I need. Yes, and, you know, that's the one thing that uh, perpetrators of domestic violence do. They they try to take away the control. Mm-hmm. Ms. Muhammad, we have another caller. We have about six minutes, so I want to get this okay. caller in mm-hmm. before we run out of time. Yes, sir. Caller from the 614 area code. Are you there? Caller from the 614 area code. All right, they're just listening in, and that's quite fine. But you know what, Brian, let me say this. Um, you're doing so many things now. You have your own um, business that you're doing and helping others. And I was talking with uh, your manager the other day, and she was saying that you guys had just returned from uh, a vigil. Could you tell us about that? Just had what? I'm sorry. Uh, was it a vigil that you went to? A candlelight. Uh, yes. yes. Victim, well, victim, the National Crimes Victim Week begins the 13th, April 13th through the 16th. The 18th, I'm sorry. And we went to the, the candlelight ceremony last night. Mm-hmm. And it was wonderful. There, was, there were a lot of people there with the candlelight to, to remember the victims of crime. Mm-hmm. If, if there is a, a victim of crime who wants to know about their perpetrator and they are imprisoned and you don't know how to find out if they've been moved or transferred, you should go to... Uh, if I don't, if you don't mind me saying, vinelink.com, and you can register with them, and they will let you know when this person is being moved, 
or escapes or it goes to court. I didn't know about this service until November of 2007. Give it's that information. In, yeah, give that site out again. It's com. You can sign up. They will inform you either by telephone, email, or letter when this person is being transferred, escaped, or is moved to a different prison. That is why I don't worry about John, because I know that that system works. And if he breathes wrong, they will <laughs> let me know. Awesome. awesome. And that's any crime victim, any, yep. not just domestic violence, any type of crime. We have about four minutes left. Could you tell us about your program and some of the programs that you're offering within your business that you've created? Well, I created After the Trauma. The website is www.afterthetrauma.org. Um, it has, I have nine programs, education, clothing, transportation, support group that I offer to survivors of domestic violence. There's an assistance form that is on the site, as well as a safety plan. If you click on the safety plan and you are a victim, please fill that out, tuck it away, because it will help you in trying to escape. You cannot leave just like that because the shelters are full, the transitional housing areas are full, and there's nowhere to go. I would never tell you to leave, but I'll tell you to plan, because when you make a plan and when it's time for you to go, you got everything that you need. It even tells you everything you should put aside. It tells you how to do it, the people you should contact. It's just a fill in the blank, and you can do the work, and it works. If you need a safety plan, it's very comprehensive, and it will get you to where you're trying to leave. Some people are not ready to leave right now, but you can plan to leave, and when it's time to go, you go. So the, the, it's, it, and please donate to After the Trauma. And you can do that online as well because I, 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 I'm so passionate about helping survivors of domestic violence because it's like nobody remembers the survivors. Nobody remembers us when, we're, when the lights are out and the people go home. We still got to keep living. We still have to do the day-to-day. We still got to pay rent. We still got to eat. We still have to do the normal things that a, that a, a family does. We still have to do that. Please Are don't you, forget about the survivors. Yes. Are you doing any speaking engagement, traveling, if someone needs to get in contact with you? If, and If someone needs to contact me for speaking engagement, yes, I do. You can contact Monique May, M-A-Y-E. Her number is 617-216-8169. And she's a sweetheart, I tell you. She stayed with yes, me. Yes, she is. Talk. <laughs> yes, she is. Brian, you've been you've been quiet the last three minutes, but I'm gonna let you. Uh, <laughs> I've been listening, man. Take this over. <laughs> <laughs> this, you we know, don't have to have her back on, Brian. We're just running out of time. I know it. I know it. You know, this issue is something that's, you know, that's kind of personal for me because of mm-hmm. my family members who experienced this, and you know, my friends who have actually gone through it, both male and female. And I think it's just so important that we have advocates like Ms. Muhammad out there helping people, telling people about it, and, you know, breaking the silence because it's the silence that's that's causing all these people, all these different people that are, you know, being abused to get killed. You know, there's a thing that uh, they talk about with HIV, silence is death. And I believe it, it, you know, it fits perfectly with this issue. Silence is death. If you keep silent and you keep quiet about this issue, then, you know, more and more people will end up being killed. But if I, but why am I silent? It's because you don't believe me. Mm-hmm. If, 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 if an environment is created to the point that I can come to you and I get help, I won't be quiet. Right. If I can come out of my comfort zone, my comfort zone, I'm in the house. If I step outside of my house and I come to you for help and you tell me, you don't know what you're talking about. That man ain't doing that to you, girl. John is a sweetheart. Why would you You think I'm coming back to you? Miss, Miss Muhammad, I hate to cut you off. we got about yes, 15 sir. seconds for the show. Yes, sir. But we'd like to, first of all, thank you for coming on. And thank you for having me. 
And yeah. we'd like to let everybody know to listen in on Monday. With that being said, you've been listening to the Abundant Solutions Hour, and we thank you and good evening. Love Talk Radio. Ms. Muhammad?